Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. For the first time in a decade, the Idaho House of Representatives has a new speaker and the rest of the lawmakers have their new committee assignments. At the end of the day, what does that mean for Idahoans? I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, associate producer Logan Finney traveled to North Idaho this summer for an update on the decades-long efforts to clean up the sprawling Bunker Hill Superfund site. Then Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News and Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press joined me to give you a rundown on new legislative leadership and committee assignments and what that ultimately means for Idahoans. The week started off with an organizational session for Idaho's 45 new lawmakers at the Boise State House, and on Tuesday and Wednesday, Democratic and Republican caucuses met to vote for their new leadership. House Republicans chose Mike Moyle as the Speaker of the House of Representatives, making Moyle the first new speaker in a decade. Moyle replaces Lieutenant Governor-elect Scott Bedke. Representative Megan Blinksma takes over as Majority Leader. Representative Sage Dixon is the new Assistant Majority Leader, and Representative Dustin Manwaring will serve as Majority Caucus Chair. In the Senate, Republican leadership stayed the same as Senator Chuck Winder held his role as President Pro Tem. Senate Democrats chose Senator Melissa Wintrow as their new minority leader after Senator Michelle Stennett's retirement this year. Senator James Ruckty is assistant minority leader and Senator Janie Ward-Angleking will remain caucus chair. Representatives Alana Rubel and Laura Nekachea remain House minority leader and assistant minority leader and Representative Ned Burns is the new minority caucus chairman. We'll have much more on committee assignments and what that means for you later in the show. Legislative news wasn't the only topic making headlines this week. The state has canceled the scheduled December 15th execution of Gerald Pizzuto Jr. after the Idaho Department of Correction was unable to obtain the necessary lethal injection chemicals for the execution. IDOC Director Josh Tewalt wrote in a memo that said while the department will continue trying to procure the chemicals, he does not believe they will be successful before the 15th. Currently, lethal injection is the only legal form of execution in the state of Idaho, though between 1982 and 2009, Idaho had the option of using a firing squad. Producer Ruth Brown has much more on the history of Idaho's execution statute. Find her story online at idahoptv.org slash Idaho reports. Governor Brad Little has allocated $1 million in state emergency funds to aid the ongoing investigation into the November murders of four University of Idaho students. The legislature established the governor's emergency fund in 1968. University of Idaho President C. Scott Green announced in late November that students could choose between hybrid and in-person learning for the remainder of the fall semester as the investigation continues and authorities have not made public any suspects. Governor Little attended a Wednesday evening vigil at the University of Idaho in Moscow, while incoming Lieutenant Governor Scott Bedke attended a vigil at the UI Boise campus. 
Associate producer Logan Finney visited the Coeur d'Alene River Basin this summer to report on the decades-long effort to mitigate historic mining waste in the Bunker Hill Superfund site, including a recent influx of funding from the state for local projects benefiting Lake Coeur d'Alene. The Silver Valley in North Idaho was once one of the richest silver districts in the world, and its mines the largest economic drivers in the state. But decades after the mines and smelter closed, the Coeur d'Alene Basin is entering a new phase of cleaning up the legacy. With the uh, historic mining practices, they didn't have a lot of regulations at the time, and so those releases throughout the, the Silver Valley and down into the lower basin have resulted in a lot of injury to natural resources and human health concerns. People called the South Fork Lead Creek. This gray creek from the South Fork come in, and this beautiful crystal clear water from the North Fork, all of a sudden, it turned this ugly greenish gray. For many years, the environmental effects of mining were seen simply as the price of doing business. But when the pollution started affecting the valley's children, something had to be done. Back in 1973, when the baghouse, which was one of the filtration system for the Bunker Hill smelter, caught on fire, the amount of lead that came out of the Bunker Hill smelter went from 10 tons up to 160 tons per month. In 1974, CDC, the Health District, and Health and Welfare did a blood lead screening in the communities here, and it was found that 99% of the children had been blood lead poisoned. They really shined a light on the issues, which enabled EPA as the trustee under the CERCLA program to list the site on the national priorities list as a Superfund site. As the cleanup began, the effects of the mines weren't limited to the dirt and water coming off of the hillsides. Even the air itself was tainted by the smelter towering over the valley. So those metals were coming out of there, they went up. The valley here has a really bad problem with inversion areas. It basically acidified the soil here in the valley to the point where vegetation wouldn't grow anymore. Fast forward 30 years and the bare orange hills, even the smelter itself, have started to fade into memory. But the entire Silver Valley is littered with old mines, and one of the largest, Bunker Hill, has a particularly tricky issue to manage. So the water that comes out of the Bunker Hill is typically a pH of between two and three, and has a lot of heavy metals. A section of Bunker Hill was mined too close to the surface, and an entire creek fork disappears into one of the shafts. The central treatment plant, built by the original mining company, processes highly acidic mine drainage, which dissolves heavy metals, and would carry them down to the lake if left untreated. With the upgrade of the plant, they installed three new sludge impoundment cells that are all lined and have leak detection systems. We're on average getting over 13 pounds per day of zinc, which ends up being, you know, just under half million pounds of zinc per year that we're removing out. Today, the local economy relies more heavily on recreation than on resource extraction. But some Shoshone County residents say the now booming tourist area might be a victim of its own success. As time passes, people forget the, the, the magnitude of the impact and, and the hazards, and it's kind of smoothed it all over, and, and they've lost the institutional knowledge of what's happened in the past, but the toxicity is still there. Nobody has to really follow rules until someone gets hurt or something happens, then suddenly it becomes an issue. But we said, no, this one campsite is in a very toxic zone. That was part of the county dump. That's been sitting there brewing for, you know, God knows how many years. The arsenic level was 500 times the limit that is considered normal. That's arsenic which is really bad. And then there's lead, was 10 times 
the limit that is allowed for in an area where children, because we, we know there's always going to be minerals and lead levels in areas, but not to these degrees. Whether the contamination is trash left by campers visible to the naked eye, or lead tainting the dirt banks, the personality of the river ensures that none of it stays in place for very long. The lake is in the center of the Superfund site, and that's a lot of people get confused because there was so much local pressure at the time and, and political pressure that they didn't want EPA to assign a remedy for the lake. There was significant public opposition to listing the entire site and not a real clear understanding, um, even from EPA, what would the selected remedy be if we were to pursue action under, under Superfund? When we talk about the bottom of the lake, we're talking about 70 million tons of, of wet sludgy sediment that in, in many places 120 feet underwater. So there's not really a good way to just dig that up and move it somewhere else. In 2019, Governor Brad Little ordered a review from the National Academy of Sciences to verify the three decades of water quality trends monitored by DEQ and the Coeur d'Alene tribe. The tribe withdrew from the lake management plan shortly thereafter, citing a lack of action from the state beyond just data collection. The tribe has more stringent water quality standards, and the tribe did have funding through settlement, through suing some of these mining companies to address the lake, but the state didn't. And they didn't have the funds to allocate towards uh, looking at phosphorus and, and nitrogen and other nutrients of concern. Phosphorus is a necessary element for life. It grows algae, it grows grass. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's in everything. Those aquatic plants grow, they die and they, when they senesce or decompose, microbes in the bottom of the lake actually eat up the oxygen. And that oxygen cap right now is our only protective measure in keeping metals bound to those sediments at the bottom of the lake. We want to keep those metals trapped in the sediment so that they don't become part of the water column and affect aquatic life. In 2021, Little created the Coeur d'Alene Lake Advisory Committee, or CLAC, to distribute grants for projects to reduce phosphorus loading into the lake. The legislature in 2021 appropriated $2 million in state funding, and this year another $20 million in federal funding from the American Rescue Plan Act. The lake is beautiful. It's, it's not a problem you can see. It's not a, a problem that we're facing directly at this moment. So even if there weren't metals in the bottom, you'd want to limit phosphorus input so that you could protect the lake health into the future. The National Academy of Sciences Review published this fall found that the lake is beginning to recover from the effects of mining, though pressure from population growth is also a concern. The lake as a whole is still in violation of tribe and state water quality standards. We have a lot of measures to determine what the state of the lake is that have been identified in the lake management plan. And our general statement of the whole lake as, as a whole unit is that water quality is on a decreasing trend and it's time to take action on that. After litigating and, and suing mining companies for nearly 30 years and getting to a place where we can actually put money on the ground and, and see the good come out of it is really, really important. Lots of progress has been made cleaning up the legacy of the mines, but from the top of the basin to the bottom of the drainage, there is still no end in sight. We probably have a good decade to two decades left cleaning up there. Then you've got the lower basin to deal with and probably eventually at some point in time, if the science gets there, dealing with Lake Coeur d'Alene also. And you've got 80 years of environmental contamination that was released, you just don't clean it up overnight, so. 
no one really understood the damage being done until it was too late. And so a lot of people can say the EPA came in here and forced this and forced that. But the truth is, these hills are green again and the water is cleaner. Our friends at Idaho Experience also spent time up north this past summer focusing on the neighboring Sunshine Mine. This Sunday, December 4th, Idaho Experience is premiering a one-hour special on the 1972 Sunshine Mine tragedy. Remembering the Sunshine Mine disaster airs 6 p.m. Sunday on Idaho Public Television. And one note, we want to clarify some numbers from a November 18th package we ran on a proposal to give high achieving graduating seniors in Idaho scholarships of $4,000 per semester to attend public higher education institutions in the state. The State Board of Education reached out to us after the interview to correct some numbers. Approximately 2,000 Idaho high school seniors would qualify for the proposed scholarship. The subject we interviewed said the cost would be $8 million per year, but the State Board pointed out the figure would be per semester. In other words, it would cost $16 million per year. We regret the error. Joining us to discuss the implications of the Legislative Committee assignments is Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News and Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press. Big changes, especially in the House majority this week with longtime House Majority Leader Mike Moyle becoming Speaker. He served under both Speaker Lawrence Denny and then for 10 years as Majority Leader under Scott Bedke. Um, Betsy, talk to me a little bit about Moyle as Speaker. What do you expect? I I think that that he is quite unpredictable and it's, it's not clear what we can expect from Representative Moyle. He, he made it very clear on his very first day, as soon as he was sworn in, that he was doing things his way, and he didn't care how past speakers did things. And the, the big example was what he did on JFAC, where he removed one of the two Democrats on that committee. Um, and those seats had always been allocated on the basis of the percentage that the minority party holds of the entire house and in the past the numbers that they have now would have resulted in them having two members and he came right out and told me I'm I'm taking care of my Republican friends I can put another Republican on there if I take a Democrat off and then today he was a little bit more conciliatory saying I'm, I'm doing what I think is best for the state but he said a very partisan tone and he's always been very, very brash and bold in his approach to leadership in the House. And I think that how that plays out in the speaker's role is going to be really interesting and really different from what we've seen before. We, you started off by saying that you think he's going to be unpredictable, but, but we know that Speaker Moyle's priorities have, have been consistent over the past several years. He's concerned about taxes, especially. Uh, he's, he's taken an interest in, in other issues as well, like transportation. Uh, we, so when you say unpredictable, what do you mean? Well, for example, his role on taxes, he's taken a, a very upfront role on the House Revenue and Taxation Committee for years. And when I asked him about property taxes, which Almost everyone in the legislature is saying it's going to be one of the top issues they're facing this year. All the new legislators say it's all they heard about on the campaign trail. Uh, Speaker Moyle's answer was, I'm not on that committee anymore. Well, after Moyle was sworn in on Thursday, he did address the body. Here's what he had to say. My friends, I'm very humbled to have your support in being Speaker. And I know I'm going to make some stumbles along the way, and I hope that you can bear with me as we make those, this trip together because we're in this together. I appreciate each and every one of you. I want you to know that uh, I will do my best to make you proud. And when I mess up, I'll try to own it. 
but I also need your help because we're a team and I look forward to working with each and every one of you. We're gonna do this together. It's a new ride for all of us and we're gonna have fun. Thank you very much. With that, house will come to order. So, Kevin, with that speech in mind and, and what we've seen over the past couple of days with Speaker Moyle, what do you expect? I mean, I guess it depends on how you define fun, right? I mean, everybody's got a different definition, but I don't know. I mean, I the JFAC move was probably the biggest uh, surprise that we saw in the uh, in the committee assignments, and you know, clearly, as I spoke to to Moyle, he's pretty adamant about the decision and the math behind his reasoning for uh, going with nine Republicans on the committee as opposed to eight Republicans. Alana Rubel, minority leader, when I spoke to her on Friday, and I know Betsy talked to her earlier in the week, is really upset about this. So whether this sets a tone that we see unfold throughout the session, that's hard to say. It, you know, it's five weeks of maybe a cooling off period before everybody gets back together. It was I, another interesting sign, I think, today in the committee assignments in that those who ran unsuccessfully for leadership ended up with committee chairmanships and with the most prominent example being Representative Jason Monks, who will be the Rev and Tax Chair, and he ran against Moyle for Speaker. We have seen in recent years in the House that there's been basically retribution against those who challenged leadership unsuccessfully, and they've had to have a cooling off period before they could get chairmanships or come back into, into any kind of major role. We did not see that this time. And when I asked um, Speaker Moyle about that this afternoon, he said, oh, he'll do a good job there. I'm not as vindictive as you think I am. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to talk about that a little bit because, you know, at, at the end of the day, there, you know, we, we saw some interesting moves when it comes to the committee assignments in both the House and the Senate. Let's start with the House. Representative Monks is the new Rev and Tax Chairman. We know that in the past he has been very closely aligned with the former mm -hmm the old guard when it when it came to tax issues and we have a lot of big things on the docket concerning revenue tax this year what does jason monks being in that position mean for idahoans who are looking at their property tax bills well it means that uh, jason monks may have almost as prominent a role in the property tax debate as he would have been if he'd been elected speaker i mean yeah we know that property taxes are going to be one of the defining issues of this session and you know knowing the civics here that this all has to begin on the House side. You know, Jason Monks may be the most, uh, maybe almost as important a player on tax issues as Mike Moyle. And for viewers who aren't familiar, all revenue and taxation bills do have to start Originate on the House, the house side. Right. And so the Senate gets what comes out of the House at the end of the day. Right. And, and interestingly, the, the legislator who's really been leading this effort over the interim has been a senator. Senator Scott Grove from Eagle has been meeting with cities and counties, and there's apparently a draft uh, property tax reform bill that House and Senate leaders have been talking about, but it has never seen the light of day, nor do the leaders on either side plan any open discussions or trying to get any input while they're having these closed door discussions. And so if it comes from the Senate, but it's the House that has to start it, where does this all end up? Absolutely, and we know that on the Senate side, local government taxation has a new chair as well. Senator Doug Ricks from Rexburg mm -hmm. uh, is that chair. So we know pro property tax is gonna come up, we just don't know what it's gonna look like, in other words. Uh, speak, going back to appropriations, um, House Appropriations Chair, Representative Wendy Horman, um, after serving for years on the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee is now chair, and though there is one fewer Democrat, there's only one Democrat on that committee now, um, 
looking at the list of House Appropriations members, there are a lot of people who are seemingly aligned with um, each other on some of the more, I guess, moderate Republican proposals that have come out over the years. Right, this feels like it's gonna be a fairly mainstream Appropriations Committee, especially on the House side. Wendy Horman's promotion to chair is probably one of the least surprising promotions that we saw this past week. She has been on JFAC for 10 years. She's been a prominent member of JFAC, especially in writing education budgets. This didn't seem to be terribly surprising, nor is it terribly surprising that uh, Scott Grow uh, is gonna chair on the Republican side. I, I, you know, He'll obviously play a role in the tax issue continuing on that committee on the Senate side, but uh, his moving up in the Senate, where really there was a vacuum in leadership in, on both the Senate and the House side in JFAC, these aren't terribly uh, you know, shocking moves. In you know, it's interesting that Representative Horman's long climb to this position included a setback in 2020 when she ran for speaker yeah. and lost her vice chairmanship on the House Appropriations Committee. Now she's back and she will be the chair. And, and you know, someone who has known her since she first came to the legislature, there are a few people who work harder than she does. She, as you said, has crafted the education budget over the years. That's that's a big lift for a lawmaker, so. It is, it's among the most complicated things that JFAC does, and everything JFAC does is complicated. So so having someone in, in one of the co-chair positions who's been so intimately involved in it shows that education is really going to get attention, and those budgets are really going to get attention. Let's talk about the education committee because in House Education, they have a new chair this year as well. Representative Lance Clow has chaired the Education Committee for years. He got moved to the House Business Committee. Representative Julie Yamamoto is now chairing education. What does that mean for schools? Well, I think what's surprising here maybe is that Julie Yamamoto is gonna be chairing the House Education Committee in just her second term in office. I mean, this is a really closely scrutinized committee for somebody who's only in her second term there, she was on the House Education Committee her first term. She's a, a career educator and administrator. She, she comes up uh, the education avenue. Uh, this, is, this has been her career and, and this has been her, her life. So it's not surprising in that sense. What's gonna be interesting to watch though with the education committees will be the interplay again between the House and Senate education committees, which is, there's always been kind of an ideological split between the House and Senate on education topics, but this time around, you may see a more conservative Senate education committee than we see a House education committee. And, and that's not normally how the dynamic plays exactly. out. It, it, it's a 180, potentially, if that's the way it plays out. So many of the players have changed that that dynamic really has flipped. Um, and when I spoke with Representative Yamamoto today about her approach to chairing the Education Committee, I was struck that she immediately brought up our new state superintendent of schools, Debbie Critchfield, and her agenda and her vision and how that dovetails with what the governor wants to see and how she welcomes that. And now it'll be up to the House and Senate to work out the details, but we may see um, a stronger role for our state superintendent in this entire process than we have the last few years. Let's talk a little bit about some of the issues that the education committees are going to almost certainly hash out, um, including whether or not public dollars should go to fund students going into private education, whether you call that vouchers, school choice, whatever form that takes. Um, we know that this has a lot of support from the new members of the Senate Education Committee and did previously in the House Education Committee, maybe not so much now. 
Exactly, and I think that's where that tension between these two education committees could come to the forefront. You look at the roster in the Senate Education Committee, that feels like a committee that's stacked with new hardline conservatives who are probably gonna be very, very friendly to whatever you call it, if it's school choice or vouchers or education savings accounts. The House Education Committee is a lot harder to handicap, largely because of Julia Yamamoto and the Vice Chair, Lori McCann. If you go back to this year when an education savings account bill came before the House Education Committee, it narrowly died, I think it was an eight to seven vote. Yamamoto and McCann were two of the most uh, prominent opponents of the bill on the Republican side. They are now the chair and vice chair. So I have a lot harder time handicapping this House Education Committee. Like a lot of these committees, there are so many newcomers, there are so many first-termers that we're all trying to get a handle on. The lawmakers that we know on the committee, it's, it's not as clear an ideological split as I think you might see unfold on the Senate side. I was also interested when I spoke with Senator Chuck Winder, the Senate President Pro Tem, about what he sees as the top issues of the session. Education was the first thing he brought up, and he talked about school choice or vouchers and how he believes with recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions something different might happen this year. He talked about our constitutional obligation in Idaho to fund public schools, which we have to do, which the legislature is required to do, but how we have surplus funds and perhaps some of that could be tapped for vouchers or school choice or something like that. And I don't think we've heard that kind of focus from the leadership in the Senate, majority leadership in the Senate going into a session um, before. On the other hand, with the dynamic shifted, where does that go in the House? And a person we haven't talked about yet on the education front is Dave Lent, a senator from Idaho Falls, who will chair the uh, Senate Education Committee. I don't think he's as ideologically, uh, I don't think he aligns with the hardliners who have been assigned to his committee quite as much as, as, you know. And I wonder how that is going to play out on school choice legislation, on school facilities legislation. Lent has been co-chairing a working group, House Senate working group looking at school facilities needs and the state's role in paying for school facilities. So right, and Lent is in an interesting position. In that. Um, he's, he's made it very clear that he thinks legislation should be brought forward to address school facilities, and we've had an OPE report, and that's another big education issue on the plate for the legislature. This well, could be one of those cases where a chair is really pushed in a direction by his, you know, the, by the ranks, by the membership. We have we have two other really big factors here when it comes to the school's choice conversation. One is the special session in which $410 million were set aside for the legislature to decide what to do with on education. $330 million of that is for K through 12 public schools. We know that there are a lot of people who are looking at school choice, you know, whether it's the form of vouchers or savings accounts or whatever, for that pot of money. We also know that nationwide, there is growing momentum and growing support for school choice options. And, and I imagine that's gonna play into the conversation too. You know, spending $330 million on education in one day in September, that was probably the easy part. Now you have to figure out where exactly you're gonna put it because you're right, there's gonna be a lot of pressure, uh, folks wanting to see that put into school choice. There's also gonna be a lot of pressure from education groups who say, we have building needs that we can't pay for with local property taxes. We have districts going for large property tax uh, for bond issues. Nampa proposed a $210 million bond issue just this week. I think there's gonna be a lot of competition for that newly earmarked education money. Sure, and not just for facilities, also for operations. These supplemental yes. levies have really gotten out of hand and maybe this is the answer to that. And if you talk to any school administrator, they'll say salaries are still an issue, especially classified employees like janitors, uh, cafeteria staff, bus drivers, you name it. 
Uh, we have 30 seconds left. Betsy, um, on the Senate side, leadership stayed the same. One of the challengers lost her committee chairmanship. That's right. Senator Lori Den Hartog is no longer going to chair the Senate Transportation Committee. She was named the vice chair of that same panel. Um, she clearly was not happy with this decision. Senator Winder told me it didn't have anything to do with her running for leadership, but he also didn't say what it did have to do with, and it, it sure looks like it's related. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. And don't miss this week's podcast when associate producer Logan Finney met with new lawmakers to discuss their first week and their priorities rolling into the new legislative session. Thanks so much for watching, and we'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.